This episode is sponsored once again by BetterHelp. After some of the most trying times ever, perhaps many of us out there are finding some things difficult. All sorts of things come to try us after all, don't they? And anything can weigh on you heavily. Personally, in the past year, aside from the fallout from the pandemic and how it's affected the people closest to me, I've had to adapt to a drastic work pattern change, my family has suffered bereavement, and whilst dealing with things like this, on top of ensuring that I'm able to be there for those closest to me, doing what I can for them as best as I can, there are times when it's been hard to do so and I've reached out, something we all need to do at some point in our lives. Perhaps then there's something that's preventing you from achieving your wants or goals or is interfering with your happiness. And if so, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. It's a much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling. It's available worldwide so clients anywhere can use it if they wish. And if it's needed, even has financial aid available for the service. What BetterHelp does is assesses whatever issues you may be facing and calling on the broad range of expertise it has available, specialists in a vast range of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you, BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected that best suits your needs for professional counselling. It isn't self-help that's being advocated here. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating in a confidential online environment with your own selected personal counsellor. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them, can message them anytime you want or feel, and can expect thoughtful and timely responses back from them. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com forward slash T-C-E. Hello all and a massive warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room based show that each time around seeks out the cases that are often the obscure, long forgotten, unfamiliar or even unbelievable ones that are tucked away in the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved one-eyed black and white menace, Peaks, is right here by my feet and completing it for business as usual, a you lot, the cherished enthusiasts who keep the show going around the sun. It's as wonderful as ever having you joining me here today once again, which I thank you for doing so, and I express as ever that as you have done, I hope it's an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So minimal bollocks to begin with here all because from what I've read I gather that Thriller is going down well indeed and so we'll get back to it very shortly. My thanks first go out to all of those who've gotten in touch to date and who've offered feedback for the arc or have shared it. It means so much from you guys as horrendous a tale it is and you surely don't get much worse a tale than this do you? It's also been one that I've been proud to bring and telling stories such as Alison's, Martyrs and Anne's, as well as the countless others affected by the actions of this pair, it's not something I've taken lightly at all, and I'm simply glad that I could do. I may have already said this in a previous episode, but once Thriller's complete, not only will I be splicing it into a decent long listen, 
Well, it'll be listens because if it was one hit, it would be longer than the list of reasons why I think John Terry is a twat. But I also have a fabulous giveaway that I think will tie nicely in with the story arc's end. And wouldn't you know, it will fall nicely before CrimeCon also. Maybe that's a bit of a hint there. But more details on that soon. Thank you also as ever to the returning and new Patreon supporters of The Enthusiast, with massive shout-outs going out to Sarah Bird, Kia Too Good, and Karen Wesley, plus Kate Stevens, Sharon Barnett, and Hannah Jackson, who have each opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much all, it's so very kind of you to do so, it means the world as ever, and I hope that you've at least made a start on some of the many unreleased bonus episodes that are available to you now. We're talking episodes such as The Murder of Janie Shepherd, The Mystery of Leatham Street, Horrors Over the Holidays, or To Kill and Kill Again, to name just a few, with another added each month. And these can be yours also to hear, should you wish, very reasonably and quickly as well. It's simply the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, where you can head to and choose your own support tier, or there's an ever-clickable link to it in the episode show notes, so you don't even have to do that. And so it's back on with a thriller arc then, which undoubtedly, many of you will have watched the three-part documentary concerning the case that's just been on TV this week over here. Who knew, eh? So what did you think if you did watch it then? I thought there was some good visuals in it, but it was a bit of a busman's holiday for me, especially for the past couple of months. So for those with weightlifting mothers, if you remember what I said last time. So far, through the thriller arc, in a nutshell, we've met taller and shorter. We've heard of the horrendous rapes and murders committed by the pair, the massive investigation to hunt them down, the groundbreaking investigative tool of the psychological profile that led police to John Francis Duffy, and his arrest, his trial, and his ultimate imprisonment. And then, several years into his sentence, John Duffy began talking about someone he referred to first as the other kid, then David, his companion, his lifelong best friend, and his partner in crime. So, shall we find out who he's on about? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and offences, including that of a sexual nature, and graphic accounts that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for Part 7 of The Thriller Arc, an episode I've entitled, A Bond Broken. So, we left John Francis Duffy talking, but why? Dr Cutler believed strongly that Duffy was looking to ease his conscience, that he'd gotten finally back to a state where he was able to comprehend the magnitude of what he'd done. Whether the amnesia he'd claimed he had at the time, and that she had even suggested was real or not, there was no denying that his memories were indeed flowing back now, and crucially, he was now confessing not just to the offences for which he'd been imprisoned ten years before, but to other crimes also. One of the first offences he now admitted to was the rape of two Danish au pairs on Hampstead Heath on the 17th of July 1984 with David. Park this one. 
Now, from the moment he'd been caught back in 1986, his taller friend, who he had once been so close to, like brothers, he was later to describe, had never once even written to him in prison, let alone visited him. There'd been no iota of contact with him whatsoever. He'd completely abandoned him. So perhaps there was somewhat an element of scorn in these confessions also. Again, this is something that I'll discuss when I come to wrap up the entire tale. This bond that Duffy had once held so dear though was well and truly dead in the water now, and this realisation possibly helped him to open up to police. Whilst he was still having the regular sessions with Dr Cutler, even before he came around to thinking and agreeing that he would talk to police, Duffy was unaware that unconnected events were to impact upon him and his confessions very significantly. From August 1996, a series of rapes had begun to occur in the very area of North London that he and his taller friend had claimed as their initial hunting ground more than a decade before. The areas of Hampstead and Kilburn that could almost have been a step back in time to his own onslaught. By that point having struck four times, the MO of the individual could have been a carbon copy of Duffy, a masked rapist who attacked strangers at knife point, grabbing the victims from behind on lonely pathways or near wooded areas or commons, and often in the vicinity of a railway station. DNA left behind at the scene of the attacks established that the same individual was responsible in each case, and even the hunt for this individual, Operation Loudwater, was being run from Hendon, the same police station that Operation Hart, the initial hunt for Duffy, had operated out of. Now this is where an officer named Detective Constable Caroline Murphy steps into our tale. She was discussing the Loudwater case on an evening out with a fellow officer, Detective Constable John Hay, who just happened to have been one of the foot soldiers who'd worked on Operation Hart all those years before, and who told her about John Duffy. Now by that time the case of Duffy was widely known I would have thought, and it's another thing that I personally find difficult to believe, is that an officer in the Met at the time wasn't familiar with the case. Because as we've heard, it is quite a tale, and reportedly, the case was even used for training purposes. But I digress. Anyway, Detective Constable Murphy seemingly wasn't too switched on with it all, but his spidey sense went off when DC Hay told her about Duffy operating in the same area years before and that the offences were similar enough that it was worth checking to ensure that he hadn't either been released from prison, or was on a work party operating outside of prison walls at the very least. He also mentioned to her that in some of the offences Duffy had been convicted of, another man had also been involved, that police were confident they knew his identity, but could never charge him through lack of evidence. Perhaps it was worth looking into his whereabouts also. Sure enough then, DC Murphy made some inquiries with a prison police liaison office who located Duffy in the prison system and ensured her that not only was he still tucked away in Whitemore Prison, but the bloody Olympic flame had more chance of going out than he did, as at the time, he'd just been made one of the then 23 prisoners in the UK who was serving an irrevocable whole-life tariff and had been told that they would die in the prison system so it clearly wasn't him. However, 
DC Murphy was told in that same telephone call, reportedly, that Duffy's files showed he was now beginning to discuss his crimes with a prison psychologist, Dr. Jenny Cutler, and that she might be worth speaking to also. So back on the phone once again, DC Murphy now spoke to Dr. Cutler, who said that yes indeed, Duffy had been talking, and had freely admitted to her the identity of an individual that he'd committed several of his offences with. An individual named David John Mulcahy. Going on from this, DC Murphy now made a report examining the 1980s offences against the offences under Operation Loudwater, comparing and contrasting them, and also highlighted one David Mulcahy in this, for not only did he at that time live just off Adelaide Road, in the North London district of Chalk Farm, precisely in the vicinity of two of the Loudwater attacks, but a check on his file revealed that back in November 1986, he'd been arrested on suspicion of rape two days after one John Francis Duffy had been, as Mulcahy was one of only two close friends that Duffy had. But there was no forensic evidence linking him to the crimes, and none of the rape victims had picked him out at identity parades. So, despite the strongest police suspicions of his involvement, Mulcahy had been released as there was not enough evidence to bring any charges against him. So sure were police of his involvement in the crimes though, not just through Mulcahy's close physical match to descriptions, but the circumstantial evidence and the sheer character of the man, that they'd even re-arrested him on suspicion once again in 1987, but again could not gather enough evidence to charge him and he'd been released. Following Duffy's imprisonment in February 1988, Mulcahy had even told the Daily Mirror newspaper, I quote, They question me very hard, but they haven't charged me, so that means they have nothing on me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm innocent. I have a wife and children to look after. Do you think that I'm going to talk to you about being a rapist? I knew John Duffy well, but I'm not going to say whether I think he's innocent or not. If the police thought I did these things, then they should have charged me. It's not an out-and-out denial, this, is it? So, if Duffy was telling the truth, had Mulcahy lain dormant for a decade, but then begun attacking once again? Once completed, DC Murphy sent her then incoming new boss, Detective Superintendent Andy Murphy, the report, and he was all over it like a rash, seeing the validity of her argument and insight, and sharing her fears also. He immediately had David Mulcahy placed under surveillance, and sent DC Murphy and another officer, Detective Sergeant Mick Freeman, to the Central Metropolitan Police property stores, to establish as to whether any exhibits remained from any of the Operation Heart offences that may yield a forensic link with the Loudwater offences, now having the benefit of 10 years' advancement in forensic science. But aside from searching the vaults in the hope that some old exhibit had been retained for many years, there was a more straightforward way to establish Mulcahy's possible culpability as the Loudwater rapist and that was to bring him in for questioning. So, he was arrested once again, for the third time in his life on suspicion of rape, and the character of the man, his arrogance, his sheer smugness, 
and the contempt he held for authority shone through once again when he was. He treated the whole situation as almost a joke, he gave no comment answers to almost every question that was put to him, and even contemptuously made the gesture of pulling out a tuft of his own hair when asked about a sample for DNA testing. Now this sample was fast-tracked to the forensic laboratory for testing against the DNA recovered from the offender in the Loudwater attacks, but police were to be disappointed here because Mulcahy's DNA was not a match for it. Another man was later convicted and sentenced for the Loudwater attacks, and you never know, we may at some time meet him here on The Enthusiast, although one scumbag at a time, eh? But every cloud and all that, because a sample of David Mulcahy's DNA was now on file, and who knows, something may turn up, some long buried exhibit. It was a case of looking as hard as police could. Now by all accounts, the evidence store must be a vast higgledy-piggledy place. Imagine the sheer number of relics of evidence that must be stored from crimes in London to have to look through, and bearing in mind, the officers were searching for exhibits from cases of more than a decade previously, exhibits which may have been incorrectly stored, moved to other long-term storage facilities, or have perished, or have even been destroyed. But the search paid off. Stored amongst the thousands of relics were discovered four bags, two bags containing underwear and two containing trousers, evidence that had been retained from the victims of a double rape, one that had occurred on the 15th of July 1984, just off Spaniards Road on Hampstead Heath. The rape of two 18-year-old Danish au pairs by two masked men. And what did I tell you to park before? Boom. These items couldn't be sent to the laboratory for testing quick enough, and once done, DC Murphy later described, I quote, I was in the office with Mick and Andy when the telephone rang, and it was Liz Harris phoning to say she'd been testing the exhibits for DNA and had come up with a positive match. It was the best phone call of my life. Fourteen years after the two women had been attacked, Forensic science had come far enough that a full DNA profile was able to be obtained from faint traces of semen found on both the underwear and crotch of the trousers of one of the victims. It matched completely a DNA profile that was on file, and the likelihood of another random person having the same DNA profile was estimated at being 1 in 51 million. When a further test was performed, this upgraded the findings to SGM plus in no less than 10 areas, equating to the odds of another having the same profile as one in one billion. The DNA profile belonged to one David John Mulcahy. Now the other set of trousers and underwear had also yielded a DNA profile as well, a test which matched almost equally the same odds. Guess? the profile of John Francis Duffy, of course. It corroborated the story that Duffy had told Dr Cutler. So now, Detective Superintendent Murphy was at a bit of a dilemma. Did they bring Mulcahy in and hit him with the DNA evidence against him in the single case of rape, which would bring charges, sure, 
but leave them no opportunity to gather evidence to bring charges in the full list of offences they believed him responsible for, now convinced this was the second man responsible for several horrific sexual offences? Or did they play the long game and reinvestigate Mulcahy, keeping him under surveillance whilst putting a proper case together against him that would close down all of his possible avenues of escape and bring further, stronger and more numerous charges? What do you think? It led to Operation Marford, the first time in the UK that a cold case team had investigated a serial killer inquiry, and as groundbreaking as it was, it would also be backbreaking. It was decided that the investigation would have a three month window in which to build the case against Mulcahy, as although the operation would remain highly secret and he would be kept under around the clock surveillance during that time. It was deemed that they could not risk leaving him at liberty any longer than this. In that window, the team had thousands of exhibits and witness statements from the offences under Operation Trinity to scrutinise. The evidence that remained from this, that is, as a vast amount of the material had been destroyed following Duffy's conviction years before. As well as the daunting task of contacting the victims of these attacks, some who'd moved across the world, and all who would have spent the intervening years trying to get over the assaults, to then bring it all back for them. We heard testimony in the Two Bodies with One Brain episode of just what a mountain that was to climb for some, and this was understood. But it may just lead to providing that final bit of closure that was needed for them also. So now, the task began of tracing many of the victims in the Operation Heart series, which involved liaising with police forces in several different countries and tactfully using these as an intermediary, explaining the reinvestigation to those victims and ascertaining as to whether they may be willing to return to the UK in the result of a possible trial. It must be a daunting thing to ask, mustn't it? For it brings arguably the worst experience of a person's life back in an instant, something they may have spent years trying to come to terms with or to forget. Something that may indeed still hold them prisoner in mortal fear still, even then. To have to relive that in a possible trial, to be in the same room with the person who's allegedly done that to you, it's understandably a hell of an ask, isn't it? But it was vital, and arguably the most critical of these was the cooperation of the two Danish au pairs whose clothing had led to the evidence that had created Operation Marford. After liaising with the Danish police, Detective Constable Murphy and Detective Sergeant Freeman flew over to meet both of the women, both of whom were by that time married. The officers found that both women had different recollections of their experiences with the police following the assaults. Whereas one had felt supported and dealt with in a caring manner, the other had felt abandoned. Also, whilst the former of these women had confided what had happened to her in a childhood sweetheart, who she'd gone on to marry, the latter, although also now married with children, had never told her husband or family, she'd just buried it within herself. The experience had had a lasting effect on both of the women, neither of them would ever walk anywhere alone at night, and if someone walked a little too close to them at any time of the day, they were afraid. But after some thought, both ultimately agreed to appear as witnesses wanting this man taken off the streets. 
This was to be the case with all but one of the victims of the Operation Trinity offences. The one who felt that she was just unable to was the German au pair who had been raped at Brent Cross in January 1985. For as I explained in the opening episode, so traumatised by the attack had she been, that not only had she immediately returned home to Germany following it, but she could never again bring herself to even speak English, even the language being too much of a reminder for her. She'd been interviewed by detectives from Operation Marford in the presence of her lawyer and a psychiatrist, however, but Detective Constable Murphy was to explain later. In the end, she was just unable to come back to England. We had a statement from her introduced into the evidence, but it was accepted that it was just too traumatic for her to come back. That would spur you on to do all you could to nail such a piece of shit to the wall, wouldn't it? Eh? It really would. Meanwhile, the other source of evidence that police hoped would convict Mulcahy was also coming to the fore. By this time it was approaching the end of 1998 and in December of that year, as I said in the previous episode, John Francis Duffy began a series of taped interviews with Detective Superintendent Les Bolland. He'd already had the shit deal I described explained clearly to him. There was to be no deal made, no privileges given, no reclassification, nothing. It was a simple appeal to any flicker of humanity in him to do the decent thing and provide some closure and explanation in so many points, which Dr Cutler believed Duffy had arrived at a point in himself to do. It was also clearly explained to Duffy the fact that for any additional crimes he was to admit to as a result of these interviews, he would himself be tried and duly sentenced for, and understanding this, he still agreed that he would give testimony should the case come to trial. It would be the first time that a highest category prisoner would have ever given evidence against an accomplice, but by doing so, it would also in the prison system make Duffy, to coin a phrase used much later, a pariah amongst pariahs, as by doing so, going against the time-established prison code of not informing on any other prisoner, he would make himself more despised than the double-murdering sex offender he already was. Each day then, Duffy was brought from Whitemore Prison to Royston Police Station in Hertfordshire, where, with each recorded interview being conducted under caution, and officers mindful to use only open questions throughout, he began unloading himself in a series of horrendous recollections. He left nothing out. So much did Duffy rack his brains to tell officers about the extent of the offending that not just he, but now admitting that he and his former best friend, David Mulcahy, had committed, it was to ultimately equate to 65 hours worth of confessions from him. He made no attempt to minimise his involvement in any of the crimes he described, and generally, his manner was very matter-of-fact, one could call it emotionally devoid, as he was to admit to some 22 separate attacks. That was merely the rape attacks alone, and of these, Duffy was to admit that there were so many, he could not remember every single one of them. The 17 further attacks he did admit to, aside from those he had been convicted for before, 
were painstakingly pieced together after he could describe various aspects or rough dates and locations of each, which were then checked against offences that had been highlighted by Operation Heart. It was important also that Duffy was tested as thoroughly as possible as to the reliability and authenticity of his confessions, as were he to be caught out in just one lie throughout, it would undermine his credibility as a witness greatly. Therefore, arrangements were made, under close guard and great secrecy, to take him to the locations of each of the attacks he had admitted, so his account could be checked against witness statements from each of the offences. This he was able to do, impressing each of the officers that these confessions were not prefabricated bollocks that he'd cooked up in the years that he'd spent in prison, for when he was at the scenes, he was back there in the moment, reliving what he'd done. For someone who'd once claimed amnesia, he proved to now have a remarkable memory, and stressed this more so with the authenticity of his confessions, when he was able to recall specific details of each offences, for example, being able to correctly challenge the location of items of street furniture when there was some ambiguity between the victim's statement and his own recollection. In some cases also, such as the murder of Alison Day and Marty Tamboza, he could also accurately describe the locations as they had geographically appeared then, as well as being proven factually correct when the locations were compared 15 years apart. When it came to discussing the three murders, however, beginning with the horrific killing of 19-year-old Alison Day, Duffy began to show signs of emotion and distress here, leading to the interviews being suspended whilst he composed himself in order to carry on. When he was able to continue, it led to the account that I brought you in the episode that covered Alison's story. His next account, describing the killing of 15-year-old Marty Tamboza, is best described in the words of Detective Superintendent Bolland, who recalled years later, I quote, He actually virtually murdered her all over again, right in front of my eyes. His face screwed up, and he started twisting his hand as though he was twisting the tourniquet. He killed her again, right in front of me. It's the most chilling, frightening thing I've ever come across in 28 years, which in this line of work, takes a bit of doing. You can only but imagine, can't you? He was to complete the confessions with revealing his role in the death of Anne Locke, admitting now to abducting and raping her, the tale that we heard in The Lost Bride. The series of confessions that Duffy made to offences put to him, several in which he claimed he'd committed with David Mulcahy, suggested two things to the Operation Marford team. Firstly, that it was Mulcahy who had initiated murder into the series. It made sense, for it would be fitting for him to have, if he were the taller of the two, the one who'd been described variously by victims as the nasty one or the violent one as murder was only a relatively small step up from increasingly violent rape. And secondly, he had done so because for him, the sexual elements of the offences had long since lost its appeal, being replaced with the increased violence and prolonged fear and abstract terror of a victim as a spur, a bigger turn-on. Truly horrific that, isn't it? 
So, gathering evidence wherever they could, investigators had obtained and pored over Mulcahy's worksheets for the early 1980s, when he'd been employed by Westminster Council, highlighting on each the times of each attack that he'd been questioned about over a decade before, and now re-interviewing the witnesses at whose property Mulcahy claimed to have been working over the relevant dates and times, thus alibying him for them. In the majority of these, where the occupants of the properties were still there, when they were spoken to by police, they could clearly remember Mulcahy having left much earlier than would be denoted on his timesheet and had given statements to this effect, thus shooting down his alibis. The same was done with a minicab firm that Mulcahy had driven for for a period also over the same time frame, as well as a courier service he'd worked for. So it's good, the case against him is cooking on gas. And then another forensic breakthrough was made. Two more exhibits from the Operation Heart Rape series were now discovered in storage, these containing two pieces of sticky tape. The tape had been part of pre-cut strips that one of the offenders in the attack, the taller one, had stuck inside the jacket that he wore when attacking a victim on Highgate Hill West in 1984, and that had been placed over the mouth or eyes of the victim, although in this case the pair had been disturbed and had fled. Now, forensic science had advanced so considerably in the decade and a half since this attack that the availability to lift fingerprints from items such as adhesive tape was now firmly there, and these pieces of tape were tested to see as to whether any could be. And indeed, there were results, because from the pieces of tape, which were examined by four individual experts, the partial fingerprints of David Mulcahy were lifted, one on the outside, and one of them on the inside adhesive part. Got you, you bastard. Now, search as they did through the 12 years since Mulcahy had been arrested as Duffy's closest friend and suspected partner, and released, police could find no evidence that he'd offended ever since Duffy's arrest. There were no unsolved offences, at least in the capital anyway, that leapt out as being the taller man's handiwork, and for all intents and purposes, it was almost as though his close brush with the law when his partner in crime had been lifted had proved too much for him, just too close for comfort, and he'd reverted to being a family man. Or possibly, he couldn't operate without his shorter partner. By the turn of 1999, officers from the Operation Marford squad had at the utmost secrecy flown to Europe and North America chasing up the locations of the victims involved in the Operation Heart offences, as well as the length and breadth of the UK, speaking to former witnesses and now retired officers who had worked on the Trinity Inquiry. They'd searched high and low for exhibits and evidence relating to crimes from more than a decade before and had some right results to show for this, and had learned everything they could about one David John Mulcahy, his family history, his personal life, his work record, shoe size, star sign, favourite member of the Spice Girls, everything. From the recollections and accounts of officers who'd been involved on the Trinity Inquiry, and the evidence that the Marford team had uncovered due to the tenacity of DC Murphy, they now knew that at the very least, this was a violent multiple rapist who had for more than a decade been at large. So, it was now time to bring him in. 
Early in the morning of Wednesday the 3rd of February 1999, a team of officers gathered around the outside of a property in Beaumont Walk, just off Adelaide Road in the North London district of Chalk Farm, and approaching en masse, with the roads either side and the rear of the property covered also, knocked on the front door, which was answered shortly afterwards by a tall, well-built, dark-haired man with a towel around his waist, David John Mulcahy. Mulcahy didn't seem too bothered or protested too much when he was told he was being arrested, merely saying it wasn't convenient for him right then as he had to go and lay a floor that day and was allowed to place on some clothes before being led away to the car, telling his wife he would telephone her later to let her know what time and where to collect him from. Now the attitude of Mulcahy at this moment is described as being one of cocksure of himself he had been arrested some months before, remember, in connection with the offences concerning Operation Loudwater that he had nothing whatsoever to do with. Only this time, when he was taken to Hendon Police Station and settled down for interview, he was told that it was nothing to do with Loudwater. He was now being re-arrested on suspicion of committing offences with John Duffy. And what did police start with? Well, you go big or you go home, don't you? so they went right in with a case concerning the strongest evidence that they had against Mulcahy, the rape of the two Danish au pairs in July 1984. Interviewing officer Detective Sergeant Mick Freeman was to recall much later, I quote, His solicitor wasn't the most amiable person, but we did the preliminary first interview in which Mulcahy said no comment to everything put to him. Then, just as I finished the interview, I asked Mulcahy if he understood what DNA was, and he again replied, no comment. Then, I informed him that we'd found his DNA on the clothing of one of the victims. I stopped the tape, and I wish I'd kept it running, because suddenly, I looked at him and realised what was about to happen. I grabbed the waste paper bin, held it up, and he was violently sick into it. Now I've never wanted to watch someone being sick before and it may sound odd but how much I would have loved to have seen that moment. That moment when any cocksureness or arrogance is wiped off someone's face with pure physical shock when they realise, shit, my past is coming back to haunt me here. Now Mulcahy was to regain some of his composure by the next police interview. And reportedly, this display of him yakking is the most sign of, of being unsettled Mulcahy was ever to show to officers, where the no-comment answers once again began. At the same time, a thorough forensic search of David Mulcahy's home and vehicles was being undertaken, which produced a large number of items that police were to retain as exhibits. There was a vast number of knives and weaponry found, clothing that matched descriptions of clothing worn by the taller of the attackers from several rapes in the 1980s as described by the victims, several photographs of Mulcahy taken at various stages of his life, including crucially from the 1980s that showed his similarity to the descriptions given by victims of the taller of the pair of rapists, as well as a number of items that helped correspond the confessions that by that time John Duffy had made to police also. One item that was, probably is, the perfect example of this was a cassette tape of Michael Jackson's Thriller album, 
which we shall come on to later. On the morning of Friday the 5th of February, David John Mulcahy was brought before Tottenham Magistrates Court where he was charged with a single count of rape, that of one of the Danish au pairs in July 1984, as well as possession of an unlicensed firearm that had been found during the search of his home. With him then charged and going nowhere held on such serious offences, he was now questioned intensively about the other offences Duffy had by now admitted to, the ones he'd claimed to have carried out with Mulcahy, and it was here that the arrogance of Mulcahy came back to the fore once again. Before each interview got underway, Mulcahy now read out a prepared statement beforehand claiming that he had no involvement in the offence that was being put to him, and would then only answer no comment to anything that was asked. And all sorts was, that if you heard you may think, what have they asked him that for? But it was very much about every single angle being covered, so that at any trial, Mulcahy suddenly couldn't turn around with a different answer to a question and say, well I wasn't asked that at the time, or else I would have said this, or something like that. You give him nowhere to turn to, or give him enough rope to hang himself. On Monday the 15th of February, Mulcahy was charged with a further 10 counts of rape and was once again remanded in custody for questioning, but this time concerning the murders of Alison Day, Marchi Tamboza and Anne Locke. He was interviewed extensively concerning these crimes and whilst he mostly maintained the no comment stance, he would claim to whoever would listen that he was completely innocent of each crime, alleging things like police had fitted him up to simply justify the cost of their investigation, that the one in one billion DNA match that tied him to the rapes was either faked or erroneous, and that John Duffy, for whatever reason, after such a length of time, was lying. Except that at that time, Duffy was having such total recall that he could have met Quato and worked for the fella from Robocop. And so, on Wednesday the 31st of March, Still protesting his innocence, David Mulcahy was now charged with the murders of Alison Jane Day, Marcia Tamboza and Anne Veronica Locke and was remanded in custody awaiting trial. Now there was to be a lengthy wait, it's usually around towards a year for proceedings such as this and this of course depends upon the severity and complexity of any case there is and in the case of Operation Marford this was a hell of a lot. Reportedly, the documentation for the case alone took up an entire office at Hendon, floor to ceiling, which the prosecution team would have to go through and then let the defence prepare their case. The evidence from each of the victims in the 11 cases of rape that Mulcahy was charged with would be crucial to the trial, that 10 of the 11 victims in those cases had agreed to appear at to give their evidence in person, but the most crucial evidence that would surely be the confessions of his former best friend and alleged partner in crime, John Francis Duffy. But before Duffy himself could give evidence against Mulcahy in court, he had to be tried himself for the 17 additional offences he had confessed to the previous year. Appearing at the Old Bailey on Wednesday the 24th of March 1999, a week before Mulcahy had been charged with three counts of murder, Duffy stood for the second time in the dock of court number one, where he issued pleas of guilty to nine further rapes, six counts of conspiracy to rape, 
and two burglaries with intent to rape that had taken place in London and Hertfordshire between 1975 and 1986. One of the rapes he now pleaded guilty to was the rape of Anne Locke, although at the time he could not be retried for a murder under the double jeopardy rule as he had been found not guilty 11 years previously. It was a draconian legal principle that prevented people being tried for the same crime twice and it was finally scrapped in England and Wales some six years later in 2005. Now largely academic due to his status as a whole life serving prisoner anyway, Duffy was remanded in custody but his sentencing for these crimes was deferred until the completion of psychiatric reports and until he had given evidence in the trial of a man that was due to take place in the upcoming months because of course Mulcahy could not be legally named then. So whilst awaiting his sentencing and giving evidence against Mulcahy, Duffy continued his sessions with Dr Cutler who reportedly counselled him to a great extent with the knowledge that he would soon be facing his former best friend and accomplice, his crimes coming once again to haunt him and this time in a public setting and the cross-examination he would receive as a result of his evidence proving a heavy mental burden for him. The heart bleeds, doesn't it? When the Crown Prosecution Service had assessed the evidence and decided that there was very realistic prospect of obtaining a conviction against Mulcahy, the case was sent for trial and the legal team for the CPS was assembled. Elected lead for the Crown was Senior Treasury Counsel Mark Dennis QC, with the lawyer assigned being the future Director of Public Prosecutions Alison Saunders, and under this direction the Crown assessed the evidence that it had. Aside from the fact that all forensic and circumstantial evidence supported Duffy's accounts of the offences, as did the witness evidence fit descriptions of Mulcahy from the 1980s, there was also Duffy's testimony. And the most compelling reason? Well, the crucial question for the prosecution team was how the jury would view Duffy. He was a convicted rapist and murderer who, until recently, had denied he had anything to do with the crimes that he'd been imprisoned for. So why was he talking now? Why would he now lie, gaining absolutely nothing from doing so, except for, and it's the only way that I can really describe it, an attempt at gaining some inner peace for himself? Former junior counsel for the prosecution, Jonathan Laidlaw, said at the time, Usually the word of a man like Duffy would count for very little, but it is very hard to think what reason he has to lie. So was he simply trying to put some of the blame on someone else in the hope of getting an early release? Well, let's see what the court thought. Trial 1999-0900 David John Mulcahy's trial for multiple counts of rape, conspiracy to rape, and the murders of Alison Day, Martia Tamboza, and Anne Locke began in court number one of the Old Bailey, officially on Monday, September the 11th, 2000. Although due to the then preceding several weeks of legal argument, it was actually the 3rd of October before proceedings got underway, presided over by Justice Mr. Michael Hyam, the Recorder of London, and someone we've met before here on the show because I recognise the name, although I can't for the bollocks of me think of which episode it was. For the Crown, 
Mark Dennis began by describing Duffy and Mulcahy's 16-year friendship, from their first day at school together onto their catalogue of offending, the serial rapes that made them the beasts that they were, before they descended further into the depravity of killing, and always in tandem as though they were one unit, or two bodies with one brain. Mr. Dennis told the court in his opening address, describing the first attack in 1982. They had been thrilled by what had happened. They spoke about what they'd done and agreed it was easy, exciting, and they would do it again. They called it going out hunting. He then told the court how the offences continued, describing the assaults on the victims from 1982 onwards and how the pair became obscenely more polished at their horrendous pastime, saying, Seven involved prolonged and multiple rape, and the remaining five were only saved from a similar fate by the attackers breaking off and fleeing. Sometimes they were left naked and told to give their attackers their names and addresses in a clear attempt to frighten them. They acted as a team at a time and location when the victim would have been at her most vulnerable. Every time they attacked, it only fed their appetite for more. Each fed off the other's excitement and anticipation. They derived huge pleasure and excitement in the hunt, the searching and waiting for victims. So excited were the pair by what they were doing, that they even had a favourite soundtrack that they would play whilst hunting. A tape of Michael Jackson's Thriller album. Oh yes. The tape was to become a part of their kit. It seemed to motivate them as they were driving, said Mr. Dennis. He then continued. Both were able to disassociate themselves from the awful realities of what they were doing, and they were able to see their victims only as objects and not people. Each supported the other and played a full role, knowing what had to be done. Each had complete confidence in the other, there was a unique but wicked bond that existed between them and sustained them. As time passed, however, Mulcai became unsatisfied. His hunger for excitement needed to be fed with a higher level of cruelty and violence, Mr. Dennis told the jury. Duffy, though, he continued, was becoming concerned about his partner's behaviour. He aborted an attack on the ninth victim on Hampstead Heath and intervened in another attack in Hampstead, the court heard, because he had never seen a victim react in such a terrified way. It seemed to Duffy that the defendant was displaying a different sort of aggression. It was only a comparatively small step to the ultimate exercise of power, killing victims, said Mr. Dennis. He then described to the court how the pair had indeed then progressed to killing their victims, outlining to the jury details concerning the murders of Alison, Martia and Anne, as well as the resultant investigation that we've heard about through the ARC to date, which resulted in the arrest and imprisonment of John Duffy. Mulcahy was also arrested at the time but not charged and denied any involvement in the cases the court heard. Mr Dennis continued, Ten years into his sentence and aged nearly forty, John Duffy finally decided to come to terms with his past. He was able to start a process of cleansing his conscience and setting the record straight. He is prepared to name Mulcahy as his partner and describe his part in the murders. 
he is prepared to come before the court and give evidence. Mr Dennis then produced to the court a letter from the then Home Secretary Jack Straw, confirming that the length and conditions of Duffy's sentence were that of a whole life tariff prisoner, with no possibility of him ever being released, and furthered that he was awaiting sentencing on the further offences he had confessed to, whilst giving his interviews under caution, shooting down any suspicion the defence may attempt to portray to the jury that Duffy had an agenda, or that any incentives had been offered to him. He then furthered that however much the defence may attempt to underplay the relationship between Duffy and Mulcahy, a whole mass of evidence and witnesses would be produced before the court that would show rather than a friendship that had waned since the early 1980s, they were in fact almost inseparable, and had been until November 1986, when John Duffy had been arrested. A wicked and unique bond, as we've said, that led to the two raping between them countless women and killing three of them. Mr. Dennis added, to close his opening address to the court. Duffy has come clean and put the record straight. It is now time for this defendant to face up to his past, a past which has caught up with him. George Carter Stevenson QC for the defence could simply retort in his own opening address that Mulcahy's defence would be a simple one, that he didn't do it, claiming... Mr Mulcahy maintains, as he has done since his arrest in February 1999, that he is innocent of all these matters. The process then began of each of the victims in the attacks that we've heard from in the, ta- in the two bodies with one brain episode, in turn appearing before the court to give evidence about their ordeal. A number had come from overseas to do so, from Denmark and even as far as the United States and it's fair to say that each had had moments of doubt from being contacted by police requesting their assistance in the build-up to the trial as to, can I actually appear? Can I find it in myself to stand before that man and relive out loud the worst thing that's ever happened to me? In some cases, some of the women hadn't told their partners or families before the nightmare was brought up once again so many years later. Yet every single woman concerned was to appear before that court, each supported by partners, husbands or family members, and bravely gave evidence, the accounts that we've heard in the opening episode, with each victim impressing the jury, so unshakable were they in their evidence. Several also revealed to the court that back in 1986, they had actually recognised Mulcahy identity parades as being their attacker, but had simply been unable to physically identify him through sheer fear. Horrendous that, isn't it? Heartbreaking. I think the courage of each of these women to give evidence is nothing short of magnificent. It's something that's been so impressed upon me through researching Thriller, it really is. Mulcahy, meanwhile, sat in the large octagonal-shaped dock of court number one, scribbling furiously into an A4 pad whenever a witness said anything, making notes of the whole proceedings. Now, aside from the rape victims, several other witnesses were to give evidence before the court. There had been some 344 possible witnesses to select evidence from before the trial had even begun, including countless police officers, forensic scientists, 
and a couple of people we've met before, including Duffy's former wife Margaret Mustafa, who told the court a basic repeat of her evidence from 12 years before, but also emphasised the close friendship between the defendant and her ex-husband. And Lawrence Locke, who once again was called to give evidence. Lawrence appeared for just three minutes in the witness box, telling the court, I quote, In the events which ran for my wife's abduction, my father died as a result of that and my mother grieved for him and I had to care for her for ten years. There is a gap in my memory from before we married. I don't have any clear memory of the night she disappeared, but I have memories of that smile. I remember that vividly. My recollections of my wife's death are derived mostly from other people, because I've been told it so many times. It was a brutal, almost bullying tactic by the defence to call him to suggest to the court that Lawrence himself may once have been considered a suspect in his own wife's disappearance, and it impressed the jury as much as the masked singer impresses me. Now I've jumped ahead of myself somewhat then, and if we were here detailing each witness that was to appear, it would take so long that Sports Direct would be having an opening up sale, so I shall cut to the witness who was either going to be the case's strongest, most compelling witness, or the weakest link that could make it all fall apart. It was eight weeks into Mulcahy's trial when Mr. Dennis told the jury, What follows is the most chilling evidence you are likely to hear, but also the most compelling. He then called John Francis Duffy to the stand. Strap yourselves in, for the following contains disturbing recounts of evidence, given here in the words of John Duffy himself, that some may find disturbing or distressing. Now as ever this is given as in as much detail as I can, not to cause offence or meant with any disrespect to the families or loved ones of anyone concerned at all, but to bring home the true horror of the events that we've heard for so many episodes. John Duffy, clean-shaven, short-haired and dressed in an ill-fitting dark business suit, speaking in a soft London accent, agreed when asked by Mr Dennis that he'd been in custody since November 1986. He also agreed that in 1988 he stood trial at the Old Bailey on charges of rape and murder and had been sentenced to terms of life imprisonment. Mr Dennis then took him through the 1988 indictment which included a number of offences ordered to lie on the court file and the murder of Anne Locke of which he was acquitted on the orders of the trial judge. Duffy now said he accepted the guilty verdicts delivered by the jury at the time which included the murders of Alison Day and Marcia Tamboza in 1985 and 1986 respectively. He was sentenced, he said, to a minimum of 30 years in prison and subsequently had been told this meant a natural life sentence. Mr Dennis asked him, As far as you're concerned, will you ever be released? Duffy replied, I will not, no. He then agreed that in March of the previous year, he had pleaded guilty to further offences spanning from between 1975 and 1986 and that included the rape of Anne Locke. Mr Dennis summarised the entire catalogue of offences as involving 25, 22 attacks on 23 women, three of whom were killed. He asked Duffy, 
Did you carry out all those offences on your own, or with another on occasions? Duffy replied, with another on occasions. Who was that person? Duffy replied, it was David Mulcahy. Mr Dennis then asked, the three women who were killed, were you alone in relation to those attacks? As Mulcahy shook his head in the dock, Duffy replied, no, I was with Mr Mulcahy. In what was to be some 14 days of evidence, Duffy then outlined to the court in detailed and graphic evidence his life and offending with David Mulcahy. His quiet manner caused those in court to lean forward slightly to hear his every word as he painted a picture of two boys who bonded through their shared status as victims of bullying but graduated to prowl in the streets of London in hunting trips as they sought young women to rape at knife point. He claimed further that problems with his marriage had led to his offending, offering the explanation, I think I just wanted to strike back at my wife by raping women. When Mr Dennis asked him about the first known rape in Kilburn in 1982, saying, Were you on your own? An enraged sounding Mulcahy could be heard to say, Why don't you just tell the truth and get it over with? I wasn't even there as Duffy had replied, No, I was with David. Your turn in the box will come, Mulcahy. Describing the genesis and the behaviour the pair displayed during the attacks, Duffy told the court, At the beginning, it was in areas that we knew well. We would plan it meticulously, and we had balaclavas and knives. We used to call it hunting. We considered it a bit of a joke, a bit of a game. It added to the excitement. Then, we would talk about what type of girl we'd like to rape and places we'd like to go. We would feed off each other's emotions. We never thought we would get caught. We were playing a game with the police and generally making it fun. Part of it was looking for a victim, finding her and tracking her. We normally travelled by car. We would put a tape on and sing along to it. A favourite which we played most times was Michael Jackson's Thriller. We used to put that on and sing along to it as part of the build-up. We would plan where to go, how to get there, and exactly what we were going to do. You know, like where we were going, what we would do, and of course, who was going to rape first. It emerged that the way the pair would decide who would rape first was by tossing a 50 pence piece coin. Simple heads or tails. There are just no words, are there? As Duffy described how the pair's horrific series went on, giving details of each attack, he continued, When we got close enough to a victim, we'd pull the balaclavas down. We wouldn't use our own names, and we'd use different accents, Scots or Birmingham. It was mainly David. I wasn't very good at accents. We would compare the attacks, who was the better victim. We'd get excited by talk about what we did to the victims, and we got bolder as we progressed. We believed we would never get caught. It was all part of a game. We thought we were better than they were. It is a very difficult thing to stop. Asked if one of them was the leader, Duffy replied, No, I'd say it was a team effort. 
He told the court that after raping the woman that the pair had attacked at West Hampstead Station in June 1984, Mulcahy had even joked that the pair should offer her a lift as they saw her staggering down the road, though they ultimately decided they would be pushing their luck and drove on. Duffy claimed, I felt a bit guilty about that one because she reminded me of my wife. When it came to discussing the double rape of the Danish au pairs, Duffy recalled that in this attack, he had used a replica gun, but this had been abandoned for future assaults, with him claiming, It was safer with knives, they do what they're told. There was a quick discussion between us, and we decided to separate the girls to give us a bit of privacy. We were very excited we had two victims. We thought it was great, really. I made my girl do oral sex, then I raped her. Duffy said that the two men then callously laughed about the rapes afterwards whilst listening to Thriller, saying, They were actually terrified, the two girls. We didn't think we would be reported. The arrogance there, the sheer detachment from humanity, it's just staggering, isn't it? But as the series progressed, Duffy claimed that Mulcahy became increasingly more aggressive and he began fearing that his partner, I quote, had more than rape on his mind, leading to him on two occasions pretending that someone was approaching so that Mulcahy would let the victims go. He told the court, I told Dave to run and that the police were coming. It wasn't true. I did it because I was on edge and had never seen anyone act like that before. Mr Dennis then led on to questioning Duffy about the first of the three murders, that of Alison Day in December 1985. Describing Alison's murder, Duffy told the court that they'd ambushed Alison at Hackneywick Station in East London. We asked her her name and address, as usual with all our victims, and I remember she gave her name as Alison. We intended the same as always, and that was to leave her and make our getaway. But this time, that didn't happen. He then gave the court the account that we heard in Alison's story, complete with the cruelty that his partner had shown her afterwards, making her walk along the outer ledge of the bridge. Describing her falling into the River Lee and him pulling her out, he told the court that she then broke free and started to run, continuing, My reaction was to run the other way. David was coming over and he started shouting my name. John, get her, get the bitch, John. That stopped me in my tracks because he'd called my real name. I turned and ran after the girl and caught her by the scruff of the neck. David was very close behind me. He was quite mad and was having a go at her. Mulcahy, Duffy claimed, had then raped Alison once again. Duffy continued to the court that he then proposed to leave, telling Allison to wait 10 or 15 minutes before going for help. But Mulcahy, who was wearing a balaclava, had told him that she'd seen his face, as he was wearing only a hood. He continued, He started to lead the girl across a playing field, and I followed. He was rough with her, and she went down on her knees. He was cutting some material from her, using a knife that he had. She was saying things like, Please, it's only his moustache I've seen. I won't tell anyone. Don't hurt me. 
Reportedly, Duffy had trembled with emotion throughout giving this account, but at this point, he became visibly distressed, and the court was adjourned briefly for him to compose himself. When the session resumed, he continued, I was watching Dave, and I noticed he was putting some material around her neck. This cloth was twisted. I went over and asked him what he was doing. He kept going on about being identified and that we would be done for attempted murder if we were caught anyway. My mind went back to the bridge and that he could have pushed her in. He was twisting this material round her neck and she was kneeling against him. She was on her knees as he was twisting it. I did not intervene. I don't know why. When asked by Mr. Dennis why he'd not intervened, Duffy replied, Perhaps confusion. I was scared. He then continued. He said, We're in this together. Take it and twist it. Which I did. I gave it half a twist and let the girl drop to the floor and walked away. I can't explain why I did what he asked. I just did it. But Duffy admitted he had then helped Mulcahy drag Allison's body into the canal. Afterwards, Duffy said he was withdrawn, but Mulcahy was, I quote, very excited, buzzing, saying they had had no choice, it was the right thing to do. David actually enjoyed it, saying it gave him power, the decision over life and death. I remember him going on, it's godlike. In court to hear this account was Paul Tidyman, the former fiancé of Alison Day. Moving next on to the murder of Marty Tamboza, Duffy told the court that the cord run across the path was something that he'd learned from the anarchist's cookbook, and then gave the court the account that we heard in the Operation Bluebell episode. Duffy told the court that afterwards, reference Mulcahy, he was becoming very aggressive, hyper, shouting at the girl. He then raised his fists and hit her. She crumpled to the floor. She was struck on the head at the side. It was a swinging blow and I noticed he had a rock in his hand or a stone. She just crumpled up and fell on the floor. I believe she was unconscious. Duffy said Mulcahy then ripped off Martia's belt and looped it around her throat telling him hysterically, This will make it easy for you. It is your turn. I did the last one. You will do this one. He passed me the belt. It had a piece of stick through it which was twisted, and he gave it to me in my hand. I actually started twisting it while David turned away. It's very difficult to explain. Asked by Mr. Dennis as if he resisted, he replied, Not much, no. I think I just got caught up in it. I just continued twisting until she was dead. Afterwards, said Duffy, Mulcahy, I quote, was excited like a schoolboy slapping me on the back. He was saying it had to be done. I did one, you did one, we're in this together. The account of the offences Mulcahy stood accused of was rounded off with Duffy's account of the night Anne Locke was snatched, which he told the court happened as she was about to collect her bicycle from the shed at Brookman's Park, which the pair had of course moved beforehand. He told the court that they were at the point of abandoning their plans that evening when they spotted Anne getting off the train 
recalling. She opened the shed door and Dave grabbed her, put his hand over her mouth and told her to keep quiet. We told her we were only after her money and she would be alright if she did what she was told. I had a small knife and David had a Stanley knife. Duffy then recounted Anne's final moments as we heard in her episode, The Lost Bride, and told the court, I was worried about David being alone with her. I was worried that he was going to kill her, but I didn't stay because I didn't want to be part of it at all. Earlier, Mr. Dennis had told the jury, Duffy was acquitted of this murder on the direction of the then trial judge for want of sufficient evidence. He has now admitted his involvement in this offence, and last year admitted her rape. Now throughout his evidence, Duffy had proven to be unshakable in his accounts. Nervous given it at first he was, granted, as it was the first time he had ever spoken publicly about his crimes outside of an interview setting. When it came to his cross-examination by the defence, Mr Carter Stevenson basically attacked Duffy's account for each of the crimes, accusing him of changing his story to suit details as and when, and attempting to shift the blame onto an innocent man, especially concerning the murder of Anne Locke, to which Duffy replied, I still have a responsibility. I walked away and turned my back. If I could stand trial for it now, I would. Duffy was also asked why he decided to come clean at this particular time after all these years. Why had he kept quiet until then? Why only now? His answer? Mr Bolland came and asked. Duffy denied that he was lying, explaining to the court. There are so many offences, I seem to get mixed up with dates and cross over sometimes, but generally, it is something I don't think I will ever forget. There is a lot of self-hate for what I've done. I feel a lot of guilt and want to make a clean slate of it and own up. I've been in custody for 12 years and have had a hard time coming to terms with what I'm in for, rapes and murders. I have raped and killed innocent young ladies. I accept that. I am not trying to shift the blame. I did what I did. I had helped to destroy the lives of young girls and it became too much for me the realisation of what a disgusting person I was. There's no excuse, no promises have been held out, I've no hope that by giving evidence, one day I'll be a free man. I'm not looking for anything in this, but to get on with my life in the system, to make a fresh start. I fully expect I will die in prison. Can't argue with the last sentence there. Now the words of John Duffy that you've just heard throughout the episode is one of the foulest, most disturbing accounts I've ever researched and written up. And I must repeat that I bring that in detail as I have with no disrespect meant to Alison's, Marty's or Anne's family or loved ones or any of the women that suffered at his hands at all. I've not embellished or sensationalised any of those words there either. Those are the verbatim words of John Duffy as was given to court number one and I bring you them to bring home the true horror of what he had to say. As always we go all or nothing here. But would it be enough to convince the jury that a guilty man, David Mulcahy, 
stood in the dock. Well, we shall find out in the next part of the thriller arc, as not only is that a perfect place to leave it, as you'll have come to notice that I try and find, but it is also the point I got to when I was writing the episode that I thought, bollocks to this, I've steeped myself in enough horror for one sitting. And so, there we go. It's one of these, this tale is, that you really do get to certain points throughout it that you think, yeah, that aspect of it is an episode by itself. Or to add that in, you have to then go down this whole route, then it ends up massively longer, or it ends in an odd part. And for me, it flows so much better doing it like this, and gives scope for so much more detail. As I've said, you do the story justice, or you don't bother doing it at all. It's the maxim that I've had throughout the time that I've been doing The Enthusiast. So get set for a bit more, not too much, but a bit more certainly, of the thriller arc coming up, which I shall bugger off and start doing right about now. I thank you kindly as ever for joining me for the episode, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you kind lot good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.